If you like having Bible study in your pocket and you have an iPhone or iPad, why not leave a review? Search Bible Study Evangelista in iTunes and tell everyone how you're loving and lifting all you've been given. Here's Sonia. Let's get social. Connect with me at Bible Study Evangelista on Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and now you can also find me on the number one Catholic app for iPhone and Android, Laudate. Let's connect. And now, let's get some Bible study in your pocket. time for Bible study spinach that tastes like cake right in your pocket. I'm Sonia Corbett, your Bible study evangelista, here to love and lift you a little so that you can love and lift all you've been given. I am so excited to be doing this show today about the Eucharist because it was the very first domino to fall for me in my investigation as a Southern Baptist over almost 15 years ago now. And I remember as I began to search for the truth about something that I had heard actually from someone else who said that the early church believed that the Eucharist was the true and real presence of Jesus and I just thought that was scandalous and I decided I was going to try to find out myself and I went to the early church fathers the anti-Nicene fathers and I began reading and the very first letter from Justin Martyr that I read it was the very first thing I read from the church fathers and he says explicitly that very thing and it began this complete upheaval for me of everything that I had been taught and as I searched for the truth about that I was overwhelmed by how obvious really it's it was in the scriptures as soon as I really turned my attention to it it was not something the Eucharist was not something I had ever heard of I didn't know what the word meant and in fact if you're one of those people the Eucharist means thanks or thanksgiving and we see that in our text for this week it is John 6 we're going to look at that in some detail today but before we do that I'd like to sort of lay the foundation the biblical foundation for the Eucharist uh, and as I said that word actually comes from Eucharista in the Greek which means Thanksgiving it's funny to me that during this quarantine every single time I've gone to the store to pick up some yeast I can't find it I mean it's just never on the shelves and so I think everyone has sort of gone back to the simplicity of making your own bread since you know you can barely find it or you couldn't to begin with it's sort of relaxed a little bit now but I don't know I, I'm not sure if anything is better than fresh fresh bre baked bread I mean warm from the oven and lots of lots of butter I mean I love mine I like sourdough bread especially when it just comes out of the oven and it's just swimming in butter I like baguettes dipped in olive oil and herbs I just I mean I like bread I don't I don't eat it every meal my mother used to always have bread with every single meal but I'm not a lover of it that much but I do I do like it and I love that God uses it because it is the staple for really every human community on the face of the earth throughout history to say something very basic about his love and his care for us it's one of life's simple pleasures it's a very simple pleasure bread making it kneading it baking it smelling it tasting it holding it and feeling the the give 
and even I like the crusty on the the outside I know I'm can you tell I'm hungry <laughs> but I love that God shows throughout the scriptures how it could also be the basis of nourishment for the spiritual life and he began teaching about bread in that way very very early in the scriptures the very first mention of an offering of bread and wine comes to us in the reference to Melchizedek in Genesis 14 verses 18 through 20 and it's important to go back to the very first biblical occurrence of something like bread and especially this priestly offering of bread and wine because we know that that's the forerunner of the Eucharist it's important to go back and determine how the scriptures intend a word an idea or an element like bread to be understood and the way you do that is to go back to that very first biblical occurrence and it is in Genesis 14 and we can see that this is the only description in the Bible of the actual person Melchizedek and yet we hear his name in the mass every single time we go to mass he is mentioned uh, in the New Testament, but it's kind of odd that that's true because his biblical entrance and exit both occur in these couple of verses in Genesis. He just seems to appear in the middle of a conflict between Abram and another king. But as I mentioned, other biblical authors place enormous importance on Melchizedek, and the reason is because he was the first priest mentioned, and he offers bread and wine. We hear his name in that first Eucharistic prayer of the Mass. Be pleased to look upon these offerings and to accept them as once you were pleased to accept the offering of your high priest Melchizedek. And so that's the very first mention of bread and wine offered in a, in a worship sort of way. And then we see in Exodus 12, the Passover bread. And this is another one of the earliest offerings of bread to communicate a spiritual message. And if you look in Numbers 11, 8 as well, we can see that this is Passover bread. And Passover, Passover was important to the Israelites because it was their redemption from the slavery of Egypt. And that last plague was where God passed over the Israelites when they put the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of their homes. That's why it was called Passover for all those years and, and still is really in uh, Jewish practice. And bread was significant in that observance because it had to be offered to God. It had to be unleavened. So it didn't have any yeast to make it rise. And it is mentioned there in Numbers and uh, other places actually but specifically the reason why they weren't supposed to add yeast is because they didn't have time to wait on it to rise they were supposed to be memorializing the escape that was uh, almost abrupt God said you don't have time and so they they continued then every Passover to make bread that was unleavened and le leaven in the scriptures is a potent symbol of sin we see that when Jesus talks about the leaven of the Pharisees but I'm getting ahead of myself <laughs> the Passover with its Passover lamb both of which had to be eaten in order for the observance to be complete was an annual sign of the covenant of God with the people and vice versa and their redemption in him then we see manna a little more than a month after the Israelites were rescued from Egypt on that first Passover they began they moved into the desert and began their their journey to the promised land and they began to run out of food and of course in the desert food and water are scarce and in their 
weariness and probably worry, they complained against God. And friend, I want to just suggest uh, to you, if you have found yourself doing this during the quarantine, complaining about not having the Eucharist, just kind of keep this in mind. Because in Exodus 16, we see that the Israelites called it manna, which means what is it? That's what the word manna means. What is it or what? And we see through that manna, it was it was called bread or food from heaven. It appeared with the dew. It looked and tasted like honey cakes. The people could use it for like they could bake it or boil it or ground it or eat it raw. And manna appeared for 40 whole years. And that says something important about how nutritionally complete it was. And they could only gather a one day supply of the manna except before the Sabbath on which they could gather a two-day supply because they weren't supposed to be working on the Sabbath. And of course, the instructions there were to teach the people that God is going to always provide your daily bread. And wisdom tells us that this manna conformed to every person's taste. That means if you got a hankering for chocolate cake, then your manna tasted like cake. If you had a a taste for steak, your manna tasted like steak. And I, I realize I'm being a little bit silly there, but it gives you at least the idea of what that verse kind of meant. It conformed to the taste of every person. That actually remains rabbinical teaching in Judaism to this day. Then we see in Exodus 24 that when Israel ratified their covenant with God at the foot of Mount Sinai, they ate and drank a covenant meal. Remember that part of any covenant includes a meal. We talked about that in the very first show of the series when we talked about sacraments and also last week when we talked about baptism, that each covenant includes an exchange of commitment, identity, resources, enemies, life, a mark, and a meal. And this covenant meal was at the foot of Mount Sinai, and it probably included meat from the burnt offerings and then bread and wine. And it made this big grand celebration of the presence of God with the people and their covenant between God and his people. Then we see the tabernacle bread in Exodus chapter 25, directly across from the golden lampstand in the tabernacle sanctuary outside the Holy of Holies. There was a crowned gold table set off to the right, and it in order for it to be portable, it had rings and poles to make it uh, carry so that the people could carry it. And it was used for the table of presence bread. And it's interesting, the, the name of the bread is really remarkable. In Hebrew, it literally means the bread of the face, the bread of the face of God or bread of the presence, because it was located in the tabernacle where God's presence dwelt. And so it was bread where God was present, and it was placed perpetually in his presence. So it was presence bread. And even when the people moved through the wilderness, the bread was supposed to remain on that gold table, according to Numbers chapter uh, 4, verses 5 through 7. In Leviticus chapter 24, verses 5 through 9, we see that there were 12 loaves, and they were laid out with frankincense. And it was that was offered with fire. And so the bread was said to be a perpetual offering. It had to be perpetual forever. And the priests cared for it on the Sabbath. The people would bake it and then the priests would bring it in and and change it out every single week. They would eat it actually in the tabernacle. More on bread in the Bible when we get back.
You're listening to the Bible Study Evangelista Show. Bible Study Spirits That Taste Like Cake. Sonia created the Love the Word Bible Study Method just for you, based on Mary's personal practice and formulated for your personality and temperament. Get your Love the Word meditations every Monday morning by signing up at BibleStudyEvangelista.com. Now, here's Sonia. about the sacrament of the Eucharist and how the Eucharist is biblical and we've been looking at different ways in which bread was used throughout the Old Testament to communicate the eventuality of the Eucharist which would arrive in Christ. We looked at Melchizedek and his offering of bread and wine. We looked at the Passover bread. We looked at manna that fell every day. We looked at the covenant bread, the tabernacle bread, or that's where we left off actually, is looking at the tabernacle bread and we saw that the the present spread in the tabernacle was presented in 12 loaves to represent the 12 tribes and of course that foreshadowed the 12 apostles through whom the Eucharist would be given in Christ and so it was important because it showed that nourishment is from God it comes from God it remains in God in the presence in the tabernacle and its name of course is very important bread of the face I know uh, when I learned about the tabernacle and all of the elements which I I go into great detail in this in my study fulfilled but one of the things that struck me when I was studying as a Southern Baptist is that it was called showbread and that means absolutely nothing (laughs) I mean it it made no sense to me when I began to research what the Eucharist is and how it was rooted in the Old Testament and foreshadowed there it struck me as almost deceptive to use that word showbread you know, instead of presence bread or bread of the face, which is what it is. And especially because it foreshadows the Eucharist. And again, this is another observance that was supposed to last forever, like the Passover. So the presence bread was a reminder of God's perpetual provision. And it was a communal offering rather than a sacrificial one. The people actually baked the loaves, but because the bread was especially connected to God's presence, it was holy bread. And so it was to be eaten by the priests every Sabbath in the holy place, the sanctuary, as they replaced the previous week's bread with fresh bread every week. And along with the bread, there were offerings of incense. We saw the frankincense and wine and oil. God did not eat the bread. So Why do you think it was such an important part of the sanctuary in the tabernacle? Well, as I said, that was because it was to show uh, that nourishment comes from God. And because it comes from God, who is eternal, it was to be an eternal observance. The offering of Melchizedek was messianic. Passover was a perpetual annual feast. The memorial pot of manna was included in the ark within the Holy of Holies. The covenant made with God's uh, people was eternal or everlasting, and the present spread was a perpetual staple in the tabernacle. So the present spread, offering of Melchizedek, Passover bread, and manna all conveyed a single theme, that God was with his people in the most basic nourishing stuff of life, in bread. He was ever-present, feeding and providing for them with care and love. But, of course, there was another important reason why he furnished it so miraculously, and that is the New Testament bread. Because Jesus is a better Melchizedek, according to Hebrews chapter 5, verses 5 and 6. So, 
the provisions of bread in the Old Testament were types of another bread that was to come. And we looked at type and antitype last week when we looked at baptism. And each of the sacraments is an antitype of a previous type. And each of these types in the Old Testament all said the same thing in a deeper and deeper way. Melchizedek's bread and wine, the Passover bread, the manna, the covenant bread, the tabernacle bread, all of these then were types of the thing that would come, which is the Eucharist. And remember that the new offering and the new bread is the antitype, the thing that was foreshadowed by the type, but the antitype is always greater than its type. The term presence bread as Old Testament type foreshadows Jesus's actual supernatural presence in the New Testament fulfillment of the Eucharist. If the Eucharist were not in every single way better than the early types, then it could not be a real antitype. And if the the types in the Old Testament were daily, they were covenants, they were sacred or holy bread, they were offered by priests. If all of that was true, then how much more true And how could the antitype be better except that it give us eternal life, which none of the Old Testament types could do because they didn't have any grace in them. And that's exactly why Jesus came. That's why he could say, I am the bread of life because he means eternal life. Hebrews chapter five, five and six talks of Melchizedek. And then we see uh, that the New Testament applies Psalm 110.4 to Jesus And he is the new Melchizedek. Melchizedek was a type of Jesus. Both of them are somehow priests forever, kings of peace without origin and offering bread and wine. And then you add to that that Jesus is the new Moses. We see in Luke chapter 9 verses 28 through 26 the transfiguration where Jesus is speaking in the transfiguration on the mount with Moses and Elijah. And he's speaking about his exodus. Now, that's not explicit in the scripture. You have to actually look at the uh, Greek word that's used there, which is exodus. It talks about his departure is the word that's used in my translation. But he's speaking there about his exodus or his departure with Moses and Elijah. And so he's showing himself, and he does so through the Sermon on, on the Mount as well, to be a new Moses because there is a new exodus. Rather than coming from the literal Egypt, the slavery of Egypt, now Jesus is the leader of people from the slavery of sin. And then we look at John chapter 6, which is actually in the readings. It's been in the readings all week this week, in which Jesus offers his most personal and explicit teachings on the coming of the Eucharist. And if you take a look at that chapter and you look at the paragraph headings in bold print, what we see there is Jesus feeds the 5,000. Then he walks on water. He talks about bread from heaven. He says his words are eternal life. He says that we must eat and drink eat his flesh and drink his blood. And he means that literally, and I'll show you how. And then many of the disciples turn away. He says there in uh, verse 35 that I am the bread of life. And notice what he does throughout that chapter. He's illustrating how he can multiply bits of bread to feed thousands of people. And then right after that, he walks on the water showing that he is the Lord of natural elements. 
He's walking on the sea and there's a storm there. And so Jesus is a better Melchizedek. He is the new Moses. And then we see that he proclaims himself to be the new manna. In chapter 6, verses 26 through 71, once Jesus knows that the people understand he is a prophet, he compares himself to Moses, who was the greatest prophet in the history of God's people, and who also prophesied one who would be better, who would come after him. And then he makes one of the boldest statements of his entire ministry. And we have to be careful to understand that his teaching there is in the context of the Old Testament bread, which the people completely understood it's lost on us because a lot of times we don't know the old testament and we don't know the way in which all of those types spoke of christ himself but it's important that's the reason i'm going through it piece by piece it's important to know how god set this up to begin with so that we can understand that our eucharist is a true antitype it is truly salvific jesus says of himself i am the bread of life and he means he is talking about eternal life and of course we see in john 6 66 or 666 that many of those disciples turned away and so we learn in in chapter 6 of john that jesus is our new melchizedek our new moses our new manna and our new presence bread and so rather than mere bread and wine to nourish our natural life Jesus offers the Eucharistic bread of his body and blood, the the bread and the wine for eternal life. He is our new Moses. He leads and he feeds us with the bread of life on our exodus to the promised land of heaven. He is the true presence bread, the bread of the face of God. And he tells us that we are to literally eat his body and blood because it is the sustenance and the eternal life of the soul. He says it explicitly. Then we see our daily bread in the church. In Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13, we see the Our Father, right? And it says in verse 11, Give us this day our daily bread. And I always wondered why Jesus was being redundant there, saying this day and daily in the same sentence. But what we see there is that he is teaching Well, you don't actually say it unless you know what the words are in the Greek, which I'll get to in a moment. But I want to just point out that when Jesus talks about his words are spirit and life, spiritual does not mean symbolic. Spiritual means super or hypernatural. Spiritual bread means more than just bread. Moses' daily manna fed the lives of God's people, their physical being, but the bread of life, Jesus, he feeds our spirit, our souls. He feeds us supernaturally. He, spe- he feeds us eternal life every single day that we receive that Eucharistic bread. And because it's because eternal life is in him. And so Jesus commanded us to eat his flesh and drink his blood. The church did not invent the Eucharist. It received it from Jesus on the night before his crucifixion and the church continues to offer it to us today every day at his command and as i mentioned earlier eucharist means thanksgiving at that annual passover meal jesus took bread and gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it to the disciples saying this is my body which is given for you do this in remembrance of me and a remembrance or a memorial in the old testament was not just thinking about it in your mind with a happy thought it was a re-participation more on that when we get back 
You're listening to the Bible Study Evangelista Show. Bible Study Spirits That Taste Like Cake. Did you know you can get Bible Study Evangelista radio notes and podcasts delivered to your inbox every Monday morning? Redeem your Mondays. Join thousands of your fellow listeners by subscribing at BibleStudyEvangelista.com. Now, here's Sonia. imagine when I think of that last supper what the disciples must have been thinking when Jesus said this is my body given for you and he breaks the loaf and he gives them pieces of it and we spoke uh, over our Lenten series about the honored bread and how Jesus dipped it and he gave it to Judas knowing that Judas would be his betrayer and how having a meal with someone and then going to betray them was the highest form of betrayal that you could ever participate in. And yet Jesus, he gave Judas the honored bread, knowing he was the betrayer. And he says, do this to the apostles, do this in remembrance of me. And we spoke about that being a reparticipation. And that means that every person that receives the Eucharist does so in union with all of the people in the world who, who receive it with them on that day or at that time, And all of the people who have received it in the past, all of the Jewish people who observe the Passover, and all of the people in the future who would do the same. And so that's why it's called communion, because it ties us together. We think a lot of times that Jesus breaks the bread and and multiplies the pieces, and somehow we each get a piece. But instead, he gives us the pieces and draws us into one body, one loaf. Each of us receives... A, the Eucharist in its entirety, body, blood, soul, and divinity. And rather than being divided, it instead brings us together in a unified body or a unified loaf. And you cannot even think that the disciples would have doubted at all what Jesus was retur- referring to when he said, this is my body given for you, and he broke that bread. Here they are at the Passover. They were familiar with the, with the Passover with the 12 loaves of present spread with Moses's manna with that pass or, or with that covenant meal at the foot of Mount Sinai they knew all of that they knew it like they breathed and so when Jesus did this i imagine that they were utterly shocked and i and i wonder when they looked back on it after the resurrection and the ascension if it if it must have just struck them with this complete awe. <laughs> I don't I don't know, but I know that the church retained that Old Testament understanding of remembrance as a participation because they called that sacrament the breaking of bread. And if you look in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verses 16 through 17, we see that St. Paul teaches about the Eucharist that The Eucharist is a participation that unifies, which is what we just talked about. And he says that if we don't discern his body, then we are guilty of his body. Now, how can that be true? How can you be guilty of the body of Christ if you don't discern his presence there, if he's not really there? And so Paul himself, and he talks about the the Eucharist or the breaking of bread as as a body of teaching that he received from Christ directly. And so he handed it down along with the rest of the apostles to us. And that's why we continue to do it. 
It is the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. The Catechism says in 1367, the sacrifice of Christ and the sacrifice of the Eucharist are one single sacrifice. The victim is one and the same. The same now offers through the ministry of priests who then offered himself on the cross. Only the manner of offering is different. In this divine sacrifice, which is celebrated in the Mass, the same Christ who offered himself once in a bloody manner on the altar of the cross is contained and is offered in an unbloody manner. So the Eucharist cannot merely be symbolic. It is the literal presence of Christ. And in fact, that was a heresy that became prevalent around what non-Catholics call the Reformation uh, around AD 1500, but the Catholic Church has preserved and taught the real presence since the Apostles' time, and I saw that when I was reading Justin Martyr and the the fathers following him and their writings about it. We also see that St. Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 11 that that was where he, he talks about discerning the body, and so the fulfillment and the er- interpretation of all the Old Testament bread is Jesus Christ present and feeding us in the Eucharist. And the Eucharistic bread is better than manna because we can live forever with God by becoming one with him, eating him, his body and blood, in that present spread, the Eucharistic bread. So just as a a quick review before we move forward, through numerous Old Testament types, especially the daily manna and the present spread in the tabernacle, God prepared his people for the present spread of life in Christ offered daily for the church. In order to be a true antitype, a thing has to be an always greater. So none of the New Testament fulfillments of the Old Testament bread can simply be physical or simply symbolic. The Lord's Supper or the Mass in which the Eucharist is half and the source and summit of the spiritual life, it must communicate grace and therefore eternal life. Jesus said the Eucharist is supernatural bread, not symbolic bread. That's in his prayer, the Our Father, which we'll look at in a moment. Receiving the Eucharist is a participation in the body and blood of Christ, according to 1 Corinthians ten sixteen, And so it is real and true eternal presence bread. Receiving the Eucharist unworthily makes me guilty of, of profaning the body and blood of the Lord, Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven. Because Jesus' flesh and blood are resurrected and alive, he stipulated that we must eat his flesh and drink his blood, or we cannot also have eternal life in him. The Catholic Church has wholly maintained Jesus' teaching on the real presence in the Eucharist since the Apostles, and the only other church on the face of the earth that continues to do so, the way the, the Catholic Church has continued, is the Orthodox Church. That's the only church. Even the liturgical churches that are non-Catholic, the Lutherans or and the Anglicans, they believe in what we call consubstantiation, while we believe in what is called trans substantiation. Transubstantiation is the change into the real body and blood of Christ through the words of the priest, which are the words of Christ himself. And because the priest has that unique power and authority given by Christ through his ordination and holy orders, which we'll look at in another sacrament, because he has that in Christ, he is able to utter the words of Christ and Jesus perfects and and transubstantiates the bread and the wine into his body and blood. And as I said, the Catholic Church is the only church on the face of the earth that continues to teach that, except for the the Orthodox. I want to mention them. I always leave them out. But they, the two, these two are the only two churches that continue to teach what the apostles taught. 
And so the liturgical churches who who hold that the Eucharist is special, they do so with that term consubstantiation, which just means that that God or that Jesus is is near it. He's with the bread, but he's not literally the bread. And so that's the difference in even even as close as they get, they don't get to the real true teaching of the church from the beginning uh, of Christ. Because of all of those Old Testament types, Melchizedek's bread and wine, the Passover lamb with bread and wine, the morning and evening sacrifices on the altar with incense, bread and wine, the covenant uh, inauguration sacrifice and meal with bread and wine, the daily manna in the wilderness, a pot of which was preserved in the Ark of the Covenant with the priesthood and the law, the 12 loaves of, of presence bread in the tabernacle with bread and wine. All of these witness poetically to us for generations and generations of God's promise of spiritual nourishment to come in Christ through bread and wine. And that's why theologians tell us that typology is the spirit of prophecy. Everything in the Old Testament witnesses to Christ the book of Revelation says. And Jesus said it himself that a, a good steward brings from the old and the new. And that's why, because the Old Testament is a foretaste. It foreshadows all that would come in Christ. And so the promise of all of that Old Testament stuff is swallowed up in the real event. The blueprint is filled full to overflowing. The Old Testament economy of shadows has given away to the New Testament sacramental economy, the covenant in the sacraments in Christ. The Eucharist has come. The new covenant is present in his Eucharistic person. Hallelujah. Because the Eucharist is so central to Christianity as to be a matter of life and death and salvation, the Catholic Church is the only church on the face of the earth that continues to teach what the apostles originally understood and taught about the Eucharist. And so we need to look at some of the church's early understanding and the treatment of the Eucharist. So we're going to start there in the Gospels. We want to begin in the on the road to Emmaus, where Jesus explained himself to the grieving disciples through all of those prophecies of the Old Testament. They did not discern him in his word, even though their hearts were burning with the truth of all of it coming out of his sacred lips. I mean, he was teaching them with his own word in his person standing before them, and yet they did not discern him in his word. When they asked him, though, to stay with them, he answered their request by staying with them in the Eucharist, and, and he disappeared. Why did he do that? Because he wanted them to stop looking for him in his physical body and begin trying to dis to see him and discern him in the Eucharist. That's why he disappeared. And so until he broke bread with them, they did not recognize his presence. I, the church has seen great significance in that that episode. He disappeared because they no longer needed his personal physical body. Could his earthly body, in fact, have been even an impediment to his fuller presence in the Eucharist? I think that it was. I think that's exactly why he, he disappeared. He said, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. John sixteen seven, which we'll look at when we uh, unpack the uh, Pentecost later. But in essence, his Eucharistic present, presence is more present to us than his earthly body could be. Isn't that amazing? More on it when we get back.
You're listening to the Bible Study Evangelista Show. Bible Study Spirits That Taste Like Cake. If you love having Bible study in your pocket, you can become a friend of the show. Click on the yellow friend of the show button on BibleStudyEvangelista.com and become a supporter of any amount and any frequency. Now, here's Sonia. In the years leading up to my full communion with the church, I remember I prayed a kind of strange prayer for a Baptist, but I prayed something similar to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. I kept saying, Lord, I just want to be closer to you. Is there not some way we can be closer? And I longed to the point of almost desperation for a closer closeness. And I thought it was impossible, but he led me to his church and he gave himself to me in the Eucharist. And it's an incredible miracle that I don't take for granted. It is the Lord indeed. And we remember in John chapter 6, 63, he said, it is the spirit that gives life. The flesh is of no avail. And of course, we know that he didn't mean that there was no prophet in his own flesh that broken and spilled out flesh and blood in the new covenant. And he wasn't just talking about uh, symbolism. He was making his meaning plain when he used the word masticate in Greek, which means chewing literally and drinking his body and blood. He's talking about literally eating and drinking. And yet when he talks about it's the spirit that gives life, he's saying that we can't understand his teaching on the Eucharist in a human sense. It's a it's a miracle. It's a sacrament. And he wasn't talking about cutting his flesh and and into pieces and distributing bloody bits of it to everybody that's what they thought because of the and the prohibition of the law against eating and flesh with blood in it and in Leviticus 7 17 11 they took offense and they ceased following him but that Levitical prohibition prohibition was given so that it would point to the promise to come in him an animal's blood cannot give us eternal life but Jesus's divine flesh and blood separated on the cross and offered to us can and it does because of his own word so the spirituality of the teaching does not make it symbolic I'm, I want to hammer that home because I was always taught that this whole passage in John chapter 6 is just symbolic but it's just because it's spiritual doesn't mean it's symbolic spiritual never sy- means symbolic actually in the Bible it always means super or hypernatural and so when they saw how literally Jesus was speaking those a lot of the true disciples stopped following him and so it was spoken as a statement of absolute fact eternal life is only in Christ and so when we eat his eternal flesh and we drink his eternal blood we have his eternal life and despite all that some didn't believe and Jesus claimed that they couldn't believe what the church teaches us that Jesus is present in the Eucharistic bread of the presence he's feeding us in this scandalous humility and only when we are illumined by the Holy Spirit can we accept that teaching and can we receive it for ourselves and of course this is the section in the Bible when the church fathers say that Judas turned away from Christ and toward betrayal in John 666 so when we try to explain you must eat my flesh as a figure of speech it is it's just it doesn't make sense because even among the Jews to whom Jesus was speaking when they said to eat one's flesh 
it was used figuratively, but it meant to hate that person or to take revenge against them. In the same way, to drink someone's blood meant to torture him. So neither of those figurative meanings would have made any sense either. The apostles took this is my body and this is my blood literally, and they preached this doctrine. It's very mysterious, but they preached it to the infant church. And of course, Jesus wouldn't have allowed himself to be misunderstood in that very solemn, serious moment of the Last Supper. It was immediately before his passion. And so it would have, any sort of metaphor would have been inappropriate and even mean. Instead, Jesus's true literal presence in the Eucharist has been the universal belief of all Christians for a thousand years until a a heretic named uh, Berengarius in the 11th century taught the figurative interpretation. And then his teaching was condemned by three church councils as heresy. And eventually, thankfully, that's why that uh, correction is is done in the church. He retracted that teaching and he returned to communion. Then the teaching remained completely unassailed until Martin Luther, and he wanted to abolish the priesthood. And so he rejected, well, he didn't personally reject the doctrine of true uh, substantial presence of Christ, but his followers did eventually do so because of those splits. So either Jesus lied or he allowed a misunderstanding that is basically an idolatry in the early church that has led Catholics to worship a piece of bread for 2,000 years. So the idea of Jesus speaking in metaphors at the Last Supper is, is cruel. And we, especially if you think of the fact that he's addressing people who were mostly poor fishermen and they weren't educated in rhetoric. So we know that the apostles and the early church understood Jesus literally, partly because of the way they spoke of the Eucharist in the scriptures. And we've already looked at St. Paul in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six when he says that whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord unworthily will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of Christ. So this is why it's so important not to receive the Eucharist in a state of sin. You must be in a state of grace because he says, let a man examine himself and so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. And for that reason, many of you have died. So one, you can't be guilty of the body and blood of Christ if he's not really present. So just as the Old Testament tabernacle was presence and sacrifice, the New Testament tabernacle, Jesus's body is both presence and sacrifice. And in fact, I think it was uh, Brent uh, Petrie who talks about the Jewish custom where the priests lifted the, tab- the table of presence bread in procession without throughout the congregation a lot like we do in the monstrance at adoration. And they proclaimed, behold, God's love for you with that table. So how much more now the real presence of God's love in Christ, our living presence bread, how can we not worship him there as he reigns in the monstrance? All of the accounts of the Last Supper say that on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and wine into his sacred hands and he gave thanks. If Jesus can give thanks in being betrayed, so can we, right? But from the Greek word there, uh, giving or gave thanks, Eucharista, that means a giving of thanks. And that's where we get our sacrament, the Holy Eucharist from. So Jesus in his own body and blood is both sacrament and sacrifice in the Eucharist. He doesn't give himself to us in miniature. He's there in the fullness of his resurrected, glorified person, but in a supernatural way that suspends the law of space and time. And of course, this is a great mystery, right? It's not even something that we can fully comprehend or understand. But his body and blood, you know, they don't have weight or height or breadth or thickness because he's present supernaturally in that bread and wine. 
9, he doesn't multiply himself into many different Jesuses or divide himself into as many pieces as there are hosts. There is one Jesus, whole and undivided. So, St. Ignatius of Antioch, who was a disciple of St. John, said, Take note of those who hold heterodox opinions on the grace of Jesus Christ, which has come to us. They abstain from the Eucharist and from prayer, because they do not confess that the Eucharist is the flesh of our Savior, Jesus Christ, flesh, flesh which suffered for our sins, and which that Father in his goodness raised up again. They who deny the gift of God are perishing in their disputes. Pope Benedict the sixteenth said the Eucharistic celebration is the greatest and highest act of prayer and constitutes the center and the source from which even the other forms receive nourishment. The liturgy of the hours, Eucharistic adoration, Lectio Divina, the Holy Rosary, meditation, all of these expressions of prayer which have their center in the Eucharist fulfill the words of Jesus in the priest's day and in all of his life. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. So in the Eucharist, we're all gathered into one through him in him, in him and with him. And that's where we get that word communion with union. And some of the earliest prayers of the Mass that we see in the Didache, which is uh, the writing of the apostles, it's a, sh it's a short catechism, as early as the apostles, they said, as this broken bread was scattered over the hills as grain and was gathered together and became one, so let your church be gathered together. I think that's beautiful. As long as the appearances of bread and wine remain, then Jesus is still present with us. But once the appearances of bread and wine are digested, then Jesus is no longer physically present, but the grace then remains. So our Eucharist, uh, because it began as the breaking of bread and later was called the Agape Feast in the book of Acts, that was what the uh, Eucharistic liturgy was built on. And it was founded on that Agape Feast in the Old Testament. And then, of course, they added the, the readings. They added some of the prayers and the, the liturgical music. But it has always been a memorial, according to the catechism, a participation uh, according to the scriptures, it's been it is a covenant meal, just like the covenant meal that was shared by the Israelites at the foot of Mount Sinai. Our mass is a sacred banquet. It is also a sacrifice. We we sort of associate that word sacrifice with something painful and distasteful that we have to either not do or do. But the original meaning of sacrifice was tr uh, was tied to the priest who offered a group sacrifice to God for group worship. And so the Eucharist is a true sacrifice in the strictest sense of the word. It's the offering of a worship gift to God on behalf of the whole group. So we do it in remembrance of him. We carry out that command command of the Lord by celebrating the memorial of his sacrifice. And we offer to the Father what Jesus himself gave. The gifts of his creation, bread and wine, which by the power of the Holy Spirit and by the words of Christ become the body and blood of Christ. Christ is then really and mysteriously made present, the catechism tells us. Now, I want to just mention, I don't have time to go into it, but I want to mention that God removed his presence from the people when they were being judged for sin throughout the Old Testament. And it was called Ichabod. The presence of God in the pillar of fire and cloud would, would disappear. It would go away. And that happened because of their sin. And so we sort of have to think that in this time of quarantine, that God has removed himself in the public mass, probably for that reason. The church has, has become so sinful. And so in this time, as we miss the Eucharist and we miss those public masses, contemplate the fact that the Eucharist is such a privilege. It is a part of our covenant in God, in Christ, in his body and blood. And so we look 
toward that day and we anticipate that day when it will be restored to us and Jesus gives himself to us once more. Sacrament of the Eucharist is covenant. It is covenant in Christ. Until next week, my friend, I'm Sonia Corbett, your Bible study evangelista. Thank you for listening to the Bible Study Evangelista Show. Find out more at BibleStudyEvangelista.com.